Hello and welcome to Scavengers Hall, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And before I get started with anything else, I would like to say a massive thank you to Nemling, who produced the gorgeous art for our podcast. It's so, so lovely and it's more beautiful than anything we could have hoped for. So thank you so much, Nemling. You're amazing. Thank, thank you, you, Nemling. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm so grateful for having that as a gift for our podcast. It's, it's really great. And so, Custy, how has your week in Star Wars been? Um... Well, I'm, I've been trying to get my hands on the new Ahsoka book. It's mm-hmm. gone out on Amazon, so I'm waiting to get it. And I'm, I hate being behind with that kind of thing. I know it's only a few days, but I really want to read it. Um, otherwise, it's been pretty quiet. No, um, for me, it nothing particularly exciting has happened, apart from getting the artwork for the podcast. It was very exciting. Yeah. Um, most of the most striking things have been unfortunate in that we got the new issue of the Marvel adaption of The Force Awakens out and it's not pretty um, basically it's the issue where Kylo unmasks for the first time and yeah the artist it's just ooh, it's that art is just so inconsistent like in one panel he looks beautiful and angelic and they have the hair curling in lovely swirls and then in another one, he looks like he's attending an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a joke. Have you seen it, Kirsty? Well, I have. And I've seen all the memes as well. Like, you know, that bit at the end of the interrogation where his arms are, like, flailing in the air? <laughs> I have seen that. It's legendary. <laughs> that's not... That's just not what even happened. It's... Yeah. I, I can't work out how many times like the artists had watched the movie or really studied their expressions and things like that because some of them look like they're pulled straight from the footage like you say the unmasking it looks Mm. like that exact shot and then others like I don't remember ever seeing that kind of thing in the movie so (laughs) yeah I I do sometimes wonder if there's maybe like a bit of a vendetta against Adam Driver going on because some of those representations of him they're just flat out unflattering no it is not to the extent i'd be like call the lawyers it's not even just him he manages Mm. to make daisy ridley look unattractive in some and and john boyega and harrison ford like i don't think anyone comes across well yeah no it's true i it's certainly not a beauty contest um (laughs) so yeah it's not great um and another thing that happened is that I picked up the new Stoll's annual, which appears to be exclusive to the UK. And that sparked several mini controversies, kind of like Storm in a Teacup situations, because obviously it's so trivial and unimportant in the greater scheme of things. So it is literally just an annual, but it basically says things like Kylo's lightsaber was destroyed. And we don't have that confirmed anywhere else. And because this is an annual published by Egmont, who publish all the children's books for Star Wars in the UK, it would seem to have some level of credibility. But then you take it to Pablo on Twitter, and he's like, what? I don't know about this. What the hell? Yeah, it's a bit... I mean, I know they can't keep track of everything. And, you know, Pablo's human. He's not going to remember everything off the top of his head. Obviously, there are Mm. lots of different things coming out. But it it does confuse you a little bit when you have a fact like that that's maybe um, 
implied in the movie because obviously she puts the saber into the snow during the fight and it's it looks like it could be damaged but to have that mm. fact confirmed in just this one place is a bit confusing yeah. yeah it almost makes you wonder if egmont knows something from other publications and then that is feeding into the annual because obviously egmont they're probably already working on tie-in books for episode eight mm. because the publishing process is so slow I can almost guarantee you that they're writing a book called Finn on the Space Horse or something along those lines because it just takes about a year to get those things done and they'll already know that it needs to happen for marketing reasons. Yeah. Um, so that's the main reason why it's kind of of interest to me because it's coming from that publisher. But really it's impossible to know what elements have any tr- basis in fact in which ones may be illusions to actual things that might happen in episode 8. And it's probably really not worth our time speculating. But there is a fun segment in it where it's about the mysteries of episode 7. And another segment that might be fun to actually go through them and have a discussion about each mystery. Because it's quite useful to have them framed. Yeah, um, I don't... Did you say that that annual is exclusive to the UK? Yes, it is. I won't be able to get it here then. But yeah, it's it just seems strange to have certain facts put in this one spot and then and in like you say it's just an annual it's not like a story or anything else that could it, it's confusing as to whether you could consider it canon or not exactly yeah although it's just an annual it does have lots of story elements in it yeah which obviously means it muddies the water kind of in terms of what type of publication it is um but yeah anyway i think that's probably enough for our preamble so we can move on to the news and the first bit of news, and, and actually it's all pretty much mostly Rogue One news this time, um, is that we have a new Rogue One poster. And I personally think it's rather beautiful. Um, what do you make of it, Kirsty? I love it. I I mean, maybe it's just, you know, the, the feminist killjoy in me. But <laughs> I love that Jin is clearly supposed to be the main character here. And then she's surrounded by her bunch of rebels, merry men. Yeah, no, it's really, really nice. Like, just on an aesthetic level, it's really beautiful. I like love how the Death Star plans are reflected on Jin's face, mm-hmm. for example. That's really cool. And given what we know about who her father is, that's obviously ripe in symbolism. So it's all very exciting. Yeah, and I was, I was thinking that they would make a bigger deal out of Vader as we got closer to it, and it looks like they have with him behind her there in the Death Star. Yeah, no, definitely. He's very much like a looming shadow in the background of things. Yeah. Um, and I think they've gone like the right approach for it because although he's clearly present in the poster, he is very much in the background. It's not selling you Rogue One as the Vader movie. It's selling you Rogue One as the movie when Vader is around, but he's not the main guy. Yeah, I think it's a good way to make it clear to people what time period we're in. Because, you know, some people might still be confused about whether this is episode 8 or not. I don't know. Um, Like you say, it makes it clear that he's not part of the primary conflict, but he represents the Empire, right? So, Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's a really great use of imagery. And I actually think it's much better than the Force Awakens poster. Yeah, I agree, actually. That was, I don't know, I I don't feel like it was particularly artistic. It didn't. It seemed very clinical almost, like, oh, here are the characters. Right, this actually mm. seems to symbolise things. 
Yeah, I'd say with the Force Awakens poster, it almost seems like it's overstuffed. There's too much, too much going on. Yeah. But at the same time, there's also so much going on this, in this Rogue One poster. Because let's count. You have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine characters. And that's purely the featured characters. That's not including any of the stormtroopers at the bottom. Yeah. So that's a busy poster, but they still really make it work. So whoever did this, I want to see them do episode eight poster, please. <laughs> yeah, I think it comes across really well and kind of gives you a, a feeling of how the story is going to be, what the, the visuals are going to be, because it, I mean, I know we're going to talk about this in a little little while, but the trailer just makes it clear that this film is going to be visually spectacular. Yes, totally. And I think this poster really sets the right aesthetic for that. Like it was a really great primer for that awesome, awesome trailer. And on that note, I've, are you done talking about the poster? I was going to say, um, yeah. Director Krennic, mm-hmm. he's he's in there with the Rebels. He's really small compared to how they kind of portrayed him in the trailers as kind of this big antagonist figure. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. If you weren't already familiar with him, you might not notice him. Yeah, no, actually, in the show notes, I, I actually made this one of the points of discussion Where's Krennic? There's a big Vader in the background, but I don't see Krennic. Um, and obviously Krennic is there, but he's kind of easy to miss because he's part of the main group of the rebels in front of Jin. And he's literally the only bad guy like in that group. The rest of them are heroic characters, to the best of our knowledge. Um, and yeah, so it, it feels a bit weird because you don't expect the villain to be in that position, like considering the rest of the characters that are there yeah i, I mean I, i'm not sure what they're if they're trying to say anything with that or if it's just a case of okay we need to have him on the poster somewhere where mm. you know where would he fit in, in in a way that felt seamless but yeah. yeah he doesn't come across as an antagonist there it's it's strange yeah no i can't help but think that it's probably just because of composition reasons because there's nowhere else you could really put him without like having him fall the other gap to the left of Jin's head, like having him in that space. But I think then he almost becomes too prominent if you make him level with Vader like that. Yeah. Because then you're almost promising the audience this character's on the level of Vader. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. So I think they've somewhat downplayed him, but I think it's logical and I don't see where else they could have gone with it, really. Yeah. Um, I, I know we're going to get onto the trailer in a second, Um yeah, but just based on that and what it kind of gave me in terms of understanding that he would kind of be the antagonist more for Jin's father than necessarily her. Um, maybe it makes sense if Galen's not on the poster as well, then you can't really have those two having a, a showdown. <laughs> yes, exactly. Otherwise, it becomes really busy, <laughs> and it all and it would also take the focus away from Jin. Like if, as you say, the main conflict, like really with Krennic, is between Krennic and Galen, Jin's father then if you kind of try to indicate that on the poster, then you're almost undermining Jin is the heroine. Yeah. By saying, oh, Jin's in it, she's great and awesome, but here's who the actual villain is in combat with, and it's her dad. You can't really do that. Yeah. And anyway, that's just the kind of the impression that I got from the trailer. Sorry to keep talking about it. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of hoping that that's not exactly true, because like you say, we want, if, if we're told that Jin is the heroine, we want her to be the driving force, not her father. Yes, no, definitely. 
going to be lots of intersection between our different aspects of discussion today, I think, <laughs> um, given that we have a woman in Star Wars chat coming up. Um, so, yeah, are we done talking about the poster? Yeah, I think so. Okay, awesome. Well, then we move on to the real meat, which is obviously a new Rogue One trailer has broken. And I'd say it's pretty freaking awesome. How about you, Kirsty? Yeah, I loved it. I've watched it. Mm. <laughs> yes. I, I like seizing every opportunity just to show people with varying degrees of willingness <laughs> the trailer. So I'm like, you want to watch the Rogue One trailer, don't you? And they're like, uh, yes. Because these are friends who really don't care about Star Wars that much, as much as it pains me to say. And yeah, so I almost enjoy it more for having excuses to watch it again than they probably enjoy it. So I really thought it was awesome. And I think the first thing that struck me was just how awe-inspiring it looked on a visual level. Yeah. Like the aesthetics, they're really, really something else. And it was very exciting. So I really got the sense watching that trailer that this is a film that is going to expand what the world of Star Wars is to us. Yeah. I and so. I really enjoyed that feeling. It, it kind of reminded me of the prequels in a way that it's showing so many of these different worlds and mm. different cultures that inhabit those different planets and how this adventure would go across so many different environments. It's, it's really exciting to see. And there's also some really brilliant like visual world building, which I really liked. So you can read so much into individual images from that trailer. Like there's that amazing shot of this enormous statue of a Jedi that's just fallen into the ground and it's crumbling. And it looks like it's probably thousands of years old. And I just love that kind of thing. So it adds such texture to the world. Yeah, that's how I felt about um, Jakku. That it mm. showed the history of, like, Jakku was new to me, but I immediately got the impression that lots of things had happened here that then had knock-on effects that had shaped Ray's life there. Yes, exactly, which is really exciting, because it feels like this is an actual world with a history yeah. and so many stories in it, which is exactly what this kind of film needs to achieve, because it's very much like a proof of concept. It's here to say look, we can do this, we can tell new stories in the Star Wars world about characters you have never met before, and we can make a success of it, and we can, we can make it interesting and engaging and fascinating. And I really think that the trailer is selling me on that. It's making me think, yeah, I, I do think they're going to do this. Yeah, I've been quite sceptical overall, but this trailer really made me think, oh, I think they might have actually pulled it off. Because yeah. we have had all these rumours... Um, not rumours, confirmation that there were re reshoots um, and there was lots of speculation as to how that, why that came about um, and whether a good film was really going to come out of this. But mm. I think this trailer really will make people a lot more confident. Yeah, it certainly made me much more confident because when I first heard all about all the reshoots and stuff and things like 40% of the film has been replaced because they were so unhappy with what they had before, that kind of stuff really worried me. And I've been a bit of a Debbie Downer on Rogue One for a long time. Um, but yeah, this trailer really got me pumped. And I think the main reason why it worked for me so well was because it focused so much on the story. And I really felt this was the first time any Rogue One trailer has really focused on articulating the story in any real way. Um, because I found that the last trailer that came out, it kind of left me a bit cold. It felt like a bit disjointed and a bit rushed. 
But this one, it felt much more cohesive and much more finished and as if I were watching something that were, were representing some final vision, which is much more appealing. Yeah, I think so too. I've, I've read some like think pieces and stuff online um, and some people have been saying that they almost think it gives away too much. Mm. But I think that's coming off the back of The Force Awakens, which didn't want to give away anything. I think that's the, the point of comparison here, right? But it is a standalone, and they're not mm. setting up all these huge mysteries that we'll then have to wait four years to find out the answers to. It's like it's more like a traditional movie trailer where you really want to get a good impression mm. um, of what the story is going to be like. Obviously, not give everything away, but so that you can feel like, yes, okay, that's the kind of movie I want to see. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's um, very much about like selling this as like a self-contained product like it's not going to be like a massive tease which is essentially what the force awakens is and it's not going to be a mystery box where it's like come back in two years um it's actually going to give us answers to the mystery it sets up which in a way will be quite refreshing because as we both know force awakens is enough to drive any sane person mad because there's so many <laughs> questions and so much uncertainty yeah um so yeah, it will be a real breath of fresh air, I think, that this film is just going to be what it is. And while there will be a sense of something greater, like a much bigger story going on surrounding this film, the Rogue One in itself is going to be self-contained and its own beast. Yeah, I, I think that when you're talking about all the, the previous trailer left me a bit cold, I think the difference is with this one, you really get a sense of why Jin is in the story obviously like linking her to her father mm. and also you kind of get that real sense of com camaraderie between the rebels which i don't yes. think quite came across before it was really like okay we're you know we're a bunch of misfits almost but we're all united by this common goal and it might seem like we're not going to pull it off but we've got nothing to mm. lose we need to do this so it, it kind of gave me goosebumps in that way it was like oh wow this is going to be epic yeah, no, I got a real sense of um, chemistry between the actors playing, like, the rebel band, which is really good. So, like you say, I never quite got that before. It just always felt like a bunch of randoms who we were being told were together, but it didn't quite seem to gel. But with this trailer, you can see them as, like, a unit, as, like, a group of people who've decided to work together, which is awesome. I think the main difference i've noticed like in terms of changes from early on is how um much like the representation of Jin herself seems to have changed there's actually an interesting article in the hollywood reporter um and basically it was talking about this and it pointed out how in the first rogue one trailer Jin like has lots of attitude and she's like it's a rebellion in it i rebel and yeah she just seems like really cocky and a bit of a smart ass Whereas in this latest trailer, she's very much um, like pure and heroic and delivering inspirational speeches and smiling and evanescent. And it comes across really well. I think Felicity Jones like plays that really well. She's very good at being earnest and likeable. But I do kind of wonder if that's something they might have changed in the reshoots. Like had a different approach to Jin. Maybe they decided she was too hard-edged or something like that. Maybe. I mean, I don't know how I would feel about that if that's the case because what's wrong with a woman having that sense of toughness and I mean I 
when I watched the first trailer and she was, I, I thought the dialogue was cringy with the whole, I rebel, blah, blah. So yeah. I thought that was a bit cheesy. But Star Wars is cheesy to an extent. Um, yeah. No, no, I really hope that they haven't sacrificed like a harder conception of that character, like an embittered Jin, like for the sake of making her likeable and appealing. Because, like, I, I love Rey in Force Awakens, but one of my criticisms might be is that she was just perhaps a bit too optimistic and a bit too lovely and charming and appealing, like considering her background, which is obviously desperate and a constant struggle for her. Like, it's almost like she shouldn't be quite as nice as she is. And I really hope that they're, they're brave enough to do something different with Jin and say, no, she, she can be a bit of an ass sometimes. And she kind of deserves to be because she's been through so much shit. I'd like to see that. Um, so yeah, I really hope that wasn't sacrificed. It wasn't like old men in suits at Disney saying, oh, this woman is too big for her boots. Totally damn. <laughs> yeah. Because um, like you say, they've made the effort to show us or indicate, and then they'll presumably show us in the movie, that Jin has been alone on her own for quite a while. Something bad happened to her father. Like, he's been kind of forced into helping out with the Death Star, or I don't know if he was forced, but something like that, that meant that she was away from her parents and had to fend for herself. Got in trouble with the law, it looks like. Um, So she's going to have that sense of steeliness that might not always make her likeable to every other character and to the audience. If they kind of went for more of a Disney fairy tale princess angle like they like you say that they did with ray which is understandable for the sequel trilogy because the saga films always have kind of a fairy tale element to them but i thought that they were consciously not going with that for rogue one yeah no so i really hope that they maintain like that gritty edge if that is indeed what they had to begin with i really want to see that kept in um but yeah we i think we will see um another standout in the trailer for me was krennic I felt that we got a better sense of that character in this trailer than any of the previous ones. Yeah, same. Which I really liked. We heard him speak. Yes! <laughs> no, exactly, we heard his voice. And I think Ben Mendelsohn, the actor, is, is Australian. But he definitely sounds like he's putting on an English accent to me. Well, that's which is evil. A, in, which is appropriate. Yeah, it's evil. Um, as we know, all English people are evil. As highly appropriate um and to be fair that's just the default for everyone in the empire i think um purely because obviously they filmed the original trilogy at elstree in 1976 when you just got lots of british actors with rp accents to play the villains because that was just what you did um but yeah they're kind of stuck to that now they can't really have non-british villains and what did you think about the galen and krennic kind of interactions there Oh, yeah. No, I really liked that. Um, because I think this new trailer was also the first one where we saw Galen himself. Um, so I think he's been conspicuous in his absence. You've heard reference to Jin's father before. But I think this is the first trailer where we actually saw him, um, which is cool. And yeah, I found it interesting because there's almost like a sense of ambiguity to the moments you get between Galen and Krennic. Um and I'm really curious to see how that relationship plays out because from the way Galen looks at Krennic, you can tell it's not just that he hates this guy and that this guy is his enemy. Like, there's clearly something else going on there. Um, and that's quite fascinating to me. So I'm looking forward to seeing that fleshed out more. Yeah, there's a book coming out before the film that kind of goes into their history a bit more, I think. Oh, yeah. No, I, 
I, I think you're right. So I remember reading the synopsis for that, and I was amazed by how much it seemed to reveal about the backstory, because I think everyone assumed that Galen was like kidnapped, like by Krennic and his cronies. But I think the synopsis for this book indicated that Krennic and Galen were actually old friends. Yeah. And that Krennic went to seek him out based on that relationship rather than to kidnap him. But then that seems at odds with what were actually shown in the trailer, where it's kind of implied that there's some kind of standoff between Galen and Krennic. Like where he tells Jin to hide. So it's very curious. I got the impression that they had a history and it meant that Galen owed them a favour or something like that. So he came mm. back because he knew that Galen was the right person to approach for this project. And then he was kind of manipulated into becoming a part of it. He didn't really want to, but he says that he wants to protect Jin, right? That he'll do anything yes. for her. So it's kind of like he's making that sacrifice. And maybe doesn't understand yet what the implications of the Death Star is going to be, that having a hand in that project is going to result in the death of millions of people. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it actually reminds me of a very early silent film called Metropolis, which is one of the very first science fiction films. And I know it sounds completely random, but I bring it up because one of the main elements of the backstory in that film is that you basically have this like mad scientist who creates like a robot, like a lifelike robot of a woman. And he had this long-standing old rivalry with the hero's father. So there's basically this background tension between this megalomaniacal scientist character and then the father of the hero and I I very much doubt this was a conscious factor influencing Rogue One but I find it interesting that there's these really old tropes that you can find going back to the 1920s like the very earliest science fiction and you can see them coming around again so I find that pretty cool yeah I think that fits well with the original trilogy as well it had Mm. this um anti-technology feel that yes. it was you know Luke with the Jedi spiritual side of things against the Empire which was obviously known for its might and steel it almost had that Tolkien Isengard feel the industrial industrialization um, but it makes sense to kind of explore that more here I think that's one of the most powerful elements of Star Wars that's not beholden to what might actually be in science it's more about like having fun with that sandbox and like playing around in it and really it's more magic than science when you look at the force and stuff like that but I think that's what appeals to people because there's something quite constrained about hard science fiction like where you have to stick to things that have been researched and things that are plausible whereas you really throw the gates wide open when it's space fantasy which is what Star Wars is. Yeah definitely like, and, and even though this is this film seems to have less of a focus on the force um like you say with things like the death star you're not worried so much about oh how does that thing actually work you know that's not really the point no i really do like how they've made that conflict about the death star so very personal by having it about the architect of the death star and his daughter i think that's really cool because it would have been very easy for the conflict in this movie to feel quite disconnected and impersonal but they're really trying their hardest to make it very emotional and to get us to buy the human relationships involved. That's what really matters, I think. And it should matter the most when it comes to this film. Yeah, I agree. I'm really looking forward to it now. Um, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it as well. Um, it looks really good. And I'm feeling so much more optimistic about it than I was 
which is really great because I, I really want this to be good. I don't want a Star Wars film to be bad. I think the reason I've been pessimistic about Rogue One is just because I don't want to get burned if it is bad. So I kind of want to downplay my expectations. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to happen now because my expectations are sky high again. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense for people to have been a little sceptical, right? Because this is the first Star Wars film, obviously separate from the Skywalker saga. Mm. They've been quite bold, really, saying that they're going for a, a different genre feel, but still keeping it in a timeline that we're already familiar with. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I hope they can pull it off. I hope it's great. Like you say, we want it to succeed. We want to see many more of these types of films. The other thing that I wanted to bring up that Mm -hmm. also feed into the women in Star Wars section yes, is that Jin's mother was not in the trailer. Yeah, it's very striking in her absence, shall we say. But yeah, I don't think that character is going to have a big role. Um, On the one plus side, in terms of female representation in the trailer, kick-ass black lady delivering a speech at the rebel meeting yeah you saw her for a few seconds but i actually got quite excited about that because i was like wow a woman of color in star wars yay exactly it means we might have at least four women with speaking parts in rogue one so exciting they can just get them to talk to each other that would be yeah it's, it's like baby steps baby steps and also, I think you were asking who the actress was, and she's called Eunice Alumide. I'm probably horribly mispronouncing her surname, but she's a model, I believe. Oh, yeah, she looked absolutely gorgeous, though, I think. Yeah, no, she looked stunning. An amazing dress. Yeah, I love that. Like, I love that kind of space fashion. I Like, that's one thing I love about the prequels that I want to see more. I want to see more ridiculous dresses that are obscenely ornate and overblown, because there was none of that in The Force Awakens, and... I miss it. I'm hoping for some of that in episode 8, but we'll see. Yeah, fingers crossed. We've got Casino Planet. <laughs> There's always hope. Um, right, are we ready to move on? Yep. Okay, awesome. Well, the final piece of news is a detail about Finn in episode 8, and it goes thusly. At the end of The Force Awakens, Finn sustains major injuries in his lightsaber battle with Kylo Ren. When we last saw him, he was receiving a friendly goodbye kiss from Rey as they parted ways. Medical staff have now placed Finn in a bubble suit. To elaborate, we have it on good authority that it's called a Bacta suit to heal his injuries. There's apparently a sequence where Finn is cut or removed from the suit and is revealed to be in better condition than ever before. Shortly after this moment, Finn embarks on a journey that is sure to make him a big deal in the Resistance. And this story is from Making Stalls, and they're essentially the most reliable site you can go to for spoilers about future Star Wars films so massive kudos to them for bringing us this even if it's small it's still something so we're grateful Kirsty what do you think I'm really excited about this spoiler I know it doesn't really give much away but I'm just so excited to see what they're gonna do with Finn um yeah this makes him sound like he's gonna just be the awesome hero of episode 8 so I just can't wait to see that and um I love that they they bring up the idea of him being the big deal in the resistance because obviously his journey in the force awakens kind of took him in that direction that you know helped bring down Starkiller Base and was instrumental in that that whole process Um, Mm. and then obviously he ends up in a coma by the end of the movie so just want to know that he's going to be okay Um, yes and then like hearing that he's going to be um you know better than before and we've seen those um like Instagram shots of uh John Boyega working out and being like 
yeah, Finn's not messing around anymore in episode eight. Like, I'm just really excited to see how they're going to make him a huge central figure. Like, he already was in The Force Awakens, obviously. Um, but I'm just, I just can't wait to see how his journey's going to continue. Yeah, no, definitely. It's very exciting in terms of what it reflects about Finn and where he'll be going um, in episode eight. Um, and I also find it really interesting because if you look at the art book for The Force Awakens, I'm really getting the impression that you can see that there are loads of ideas scattered throughout that book that you can find, like, hinted at in the captions and the artworks themselves. And I'm almost sure that there's lots of ideas in that book that are going to be revisited in episode eight. And um, one of them was the idea of Finn, after he crashes on Jakku, he kind of like undergoes this like ceremony and he's like reborn as a warrior, like a brave hero. And I kind of can't help but feel that they shifted that aspect of the character's development from early on in The Force Awakens to the beginning of episode eight. Yes. based on this because it seems to be that they're going for he's bigger better stronger like vibe for finn when he's revealed to us again and i kind of think that indicates that this is finn like in hero mode because obviously in the force awakens finn spends most of the movie running from the first order and until right at the very end when obviously he says no i'm going to stop running and i'm going to save ray and then that's his turning point but obviously he still gets beaten by Kylo and we don't see him really come to his own properly in hero mode. And I really see that happening in episode eight, which I think is very exciting. Yeah. I feel like he's kind of got to that part of the hero's journey where it is the death and rebirth. Um, and I think that means that he's further along in his hero's journey than Ray might be with hers at the moment. Um, mm. But it is kind of that opportunity for him to kind of, really make his decisions about where his loyalties lie because as you say he defected from the first order and then kind of aligned with the resistance almost by obligation or just by circumstance mm. um, but you'd hope in episode eight it's really like okay i believe in what you guys are fighting for and that probably is partly shaped by his personal experiences being in the first mm. order and taken when he was a child but you really want to see the characters develop a sense of yes this is where i belong this is what i care about doing with my life yeah no exactly i think we can get a much better sense of finn like self-determining in episode eight rather than like being shunted along because he's being chased and because he's constantly under stress and being forced to do things by other people i think that's probably something we're going to see with ray and finn actually just them making their own choices and hopefully a bit more like quiet contemplative moments where we actually see them pause for a moment and think about what they're doing and where they want to go and what their goals and ambitions are. Yeah, The Force Awakens was kind of non-stop, right? It was almost like every time they had a chance to, oh, how, let's, you know, we just escaped that problem. Let's have a breather and talk to each other about something. And something else mm. would happen. They got shot at or they would get captured or something. Um, so, yeah, like you say, if they have those moments where they actually think about, okay, this is what's happened to me so far, let me take stock and really make a decision about where I want to be next. With Finn, it was almost like he was reacting out of instinct, that it was just like, okay, um, I'm going to shoot the stormtroopers that I was just allied with because I, I'm just desperate to get away. Mm. But with episode eight, is he going to kind of reflect on that 
is he going to be like, oh, wait, they're my, you know, former fellow comrades. Can I liberate them? Can I try and make them realize that they, they were taken as children? Can I lead some kind of revolution? Yeah, I really love that idea of being of some kind of like liberator of the stormtroopers. I think that'd be a really cool storyline for him. And like you said, it would also allow for these really great moments of reflection that I think are really necessary because, like you say, Force Awakens was just so bam, bam, bam. There wasn't any time for that. So, yeah, I think there's real opportunity in Episode 8 to offer that, which I'd really welcome. Yeah, I would, I would really like to see something like that where they bring in a sense of um, ethical dilemma or morality issues for Finn because I don't want him to just be an action hero. Yes. Like, I want him to be making decisions and really thinking about things. Um, just to, you know, flesh out the character. Like, that's what he deserves on his journey. And I presume that this bit where they're saying he embarks on a journey shortly after that moment, that that's mm-hmm. talking about the spoiler that they shared the week before or a couple of weeks before about um, the, the bombs going off and the explosions with um, Kelly Marie Tran's character. I don't think that's going to be directly related, actually. Um, and that's because I believe that the scene number was much later in the film. I think that the scene number was, I don't know, like halfway through or something like that, the space bombs sequence. Yeah, you're right. I think that's later. And then the first they're going to the casino planet, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So speaking purely from a speculative basis, I'd imagine that Finn meets Callie Marie Tran's character on that casino planet and then it's some kind of epic escape on the space horse um and then they go on to have the space bomb adventure um so it's probably going to be like a series of little episodes between them where they go and do various things together um but yeah i don't think that the he's going to be going straight off to plant bombs it's probably some kind of secret mission or something um but yeah i look forward to learning more about what that mission might be Right, so we can now move on to our next segment, which is the rather ambitious Women in Star Wars. This is our spotlight segment, so essentially this means we take a nice meaty subject and we have a nice meaty discussion about it. And obviously the title of this subject is quite self-explanatory, but we're basically going to be covering our feelings about like how women have been represented across all three trilogies, so prequel, original, sequel, and just like really discussing our thoughts and getting into like what we like about the representation of female characters and what we feel like has maybe been a bit lacking and how things could have been changed. Um, So yeah, um, Kirsty, would you like to maybe go into like general observations or your feelings about this? Uh... I have an awful lot of opinions about women in Star Wars. <laughs> um, so we're, I would expect nothing less. You know, we'll probably barely scratch the surface today. But to me, a general overarching theme would be that there's an awful lot of potential and it's very rarely met. Yes. Um, so just an example with the prequels. I absolutely loved Padme um, and that was the defining part of The Phantom Menace for me. I loved Padme and I loved her handmaidens. Yeah. But over the course of the trilogy, it's almost like she just increasingly is used as a plot device in Anakin's arc, which makes sense because he's the, you know, he's the protagonist. He's going to become Vader. We need to see how he falls. But because of that and the way that their relationship was written, 
um, it just comes across as very one-sided and just kind of a case of she's there to facilitate his downfall. And it's very little about what she wants. That's almost considered an afterthought. And she's very principled. She stands up for what she believes in. But it's it's just clearly used as an obstacle for Anakin. I don't know if I'm yeah, expecting yeah. too much because she isn't the protagonist. I don't think you're expecting too much at all because I do think in Phantom Menace there's a good case to be made for Padme as one of the protagonists of that film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because obviously she is one of the most featured characters in The Phantom Menace. And it's really her story more than like little Anakin's, for example. We meet Padme way before we meet young Anakin. And I would be reluctant to call Qui-Gon or Obi-Wan like the heroes or protagonists of that film. They're really important, but they just don't strike me as protagonist material. Again, just because they like drop in and out of it for extended periods of time. And I feel that Padme is the most constant character in The Phantom Menace. And she actually has like real goals and you are shown like what she believes in and what she's fighting for in a way that you really aren't with the other characters like Padme has like a sense of purpose that I don't think you find of anyone else in Phantom Menace and that makes her quite empathetic and appealing as a protagonist um but yeah like you say as the films go on it's almost like she gradually loses all of that agency and all of that will that made her an interesting character in The Phantom Menace. And then by the time of Rend of the Sith, she's almost literally barefoot and pregnant. Right. Like she literally exists to carry Anakin's children and be angst over. Like, and that's almost this whole sum of her character. And it's really quite depressing. It's like a decline, a steady, steady decline in terms of her representation, like just as a person, let alone as a woman. Yeah, there's all, like, obviously they had, it was an obligation to have her pregnant so that they could, you know, have Luke and Leia. Like, I understand that. Yeah. Just because she's pregnant, she doesn't need to stay in the apartment all the time and just wring her hands over where her husband is and what he's doing. Yeah, no, that really bothers me. Um, like, I think it's especially frustrating because you look at the deleted scenes from Revenge of the Sith. There's quite a few good deleted scenes of Padme yeah. where she's talking politics and you see her like helping set up what will eventually become the Rebel Alliance. And that stuff's really cool because it reminds the viewer that, hang on, Padme is actually her own person. She does still have goals that extend beyond being in love with Anakin and wanting to save him. And there are still things that matter to her. She still has principles. And... There's just none of that in the finished film. And it's so frustrating to know that they filmed this stuff, but it just didn't get in. Yeah, I agree. Because I think adding those scenes in would have really given it this extra layer that there was this real rift in the way that Anakin and Padme saw how things should go politically. That yes. just he was falling to the dark side, but she was actually taking active stand against that, against the Empire. I don't know whether these scenes were before or after she realised what was going on. So whether it was in reaction to him or just that she realised what was going on with Palpatine, do you know? Um, I'm pretty sure that if she didn't know what was going on with Anakin so much. It's more that she suspected like corruption in the Senate and she realised how badly everything was broken. Okay. So she thought there had to be like something else. There had to be some other organisation. It's almost 
like what Leia goes through in Bloodline when she decides that she has to set up the resistance because like the political system as it is is just not working so there's actually quite a nice mirror there um but yeah you're right it would have been a really really nice parallel with Anakin's like ideological turns because we would have seen like that the separation between them isn't just personal which is how it comes across in Revenge of the Sith um, it's also political, it's also about how they just have completely different perceptions of how things should be, like on a macro level. It's not just, oh, you're breaking my heart, Anakin. <laughs> uh, whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it comes across through Anakin as well. Um, I know that, you know, him falling to the dark side because he's desperate to save the woman he loves. I understand that. But it was almost like it kind of showed that he didn't really understand the woman he did love because going to the dark side to save her and going against everything she values and stands for, I don't understand how he thought that she was going to stick around after that anyway. Like, yeah. stopped him, but at what cost? Like, if he's yeah. going to sacrifice everything that they've worked for, obviously at that point he's not thinking clearly, but it just kind of, I, I don't know if that was an intentional part of the writing, but it, it obviously showed that their relationship wasn't really based on a true understanding of each other's personalities it was more like obsession yeah i think it's very much like the kind of romance where it's founded on like a this raw physical attraction because they're both young and really really hot um and and b because like anakin has this kind of idolized version of padme in his mind because obviously he met her when he was a small child and she was probably the most beautiful person he'd ever seen oh yeah he said are you an angel (laughs) <laughs> yes oh it's so cringe um yeah so they play they play on that um but yeah so i think he goes away for 10 years they don't see each other for 10 years and then when when they're reunited anakin he's probably built up this very like this completely perfect fantasy version of padme in his mind and then when he sees her again, like it's the fantasy version of Padme as like this young, beautiful girl that he falls in love with rather than like Padme, the politician and the senator. Like he, he never seems especially interested in Padme's like political leanings. Like, he, like all of their conversations, they're just so inane, kind of. There's never like any sense of deep connection between them or affinity. Um, and of course, in part, it's because the writing's not very good. But at the same time, it does play home that this isn't like a relationship founded on much beyond like superficial qualities. And in a way, I think Revenge of the Sith that really drives that home at the end because it, there is really tragic and heartbreaking when you see Padme confronting Anakin or Mustafa and. Like, obviously, the acting is still isn't amazing, but I do genuinely feel, like, her pain and her shock and her horror when she realises all the terrible, terrible things he's done. And even worse, that he's doing them because he thinks it's for her and for him, and that is what she'd want. Like, she's absolutely horrified. And there is real dramatic power in that. It's just because Padme has been reduced to, like, the love object of Anakin and not much beyond that, like it's difficult to truly engage with that storyline and truly appreciate the tragedy of it. Yeah, this was something about 
um, the sequel that I was actually quite concerned about. I don't think it's going to happen because I think they might have learned their lesson. Mm. But I was worried that, you know, we have Rey as a protagonist in The Force Awakens, obviously side by side with Finn. But as mm. you say, Padme was kind of the protagonist of The Phantom Menace. So I kind of, I got a little paranoid for a while that there was going to be this bait and switch almost. I really hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, I don't, because I don't, that'd be so tragic. And I trust Kathleen Kennedy that she wouldn't let that happen. But I, I was a little worried. There's definitely historical precedent for women like getting the short straw, essentially, in terms of their representation. But I'm confident that that's not going to happen anymore. Like now, especially when you look at the story group, and I think it's actually majority women. Like I'm optimistic that they're not going to let Ray be as devalued and essentially shunted to the sidelines as Padme was yeah I, I, Padme like you say she just became like a motivator for Anakin and that can't happen to Rey I don't want to see that happen yeah I don't I don't see it happening based on where I think the story's going uh, yes but it, it could have happened like it, and like you say there's historical precedent here it would have actually been depressingly familiar <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely an element of the ring theory that we don't want to see make a comeback. Yeah, because, you know, even with Leia, and I know we'll get to this later in more detail, but I I don't think she's fleshed out in the original trilogy as much as she could have been. I loved her, but mm. again, it's that case of, oh, there was so much potential, started off so well, and then by Return of the Jedi, it's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, um, I think George Lucas is a lot about lost potential when it comes to female characters. Um, So beyond Padme, like, what do we think about the female characters in the prequel trilogy beyond Padme? Let's actually just think about which ones there are. So in Phantom Menace, there's Shimmy, like Anakin's mother. Um, and I'm really struggling to think of like prominent named females beyond Padme and Shimmy in the prequel trilogy. There's obviously Padme's handmaidens. Yeah, so Sabe, is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. her name? Kira Knightley. Yes. Um, but aside from those, I can't really think of any there's like there are background female jedi that were then explored more in the clone wars mm. um mon mothma was cut right from the prequels yes <laughs> yeah no so i think like the prevailing impression we're getting from the prequels uh which is going to be depressingly familiar by the end of this discussion i'm afraid like, are there, um, there, is that there just aren't that many women are there any female jedi on the jedi council um, yes, there are. Okay, there are 100%. Um, I, I don't know her name. There's the black lady with like the funny headdress. Um, and she's one of the Jedi on the Council in the Phantom Menace, I think. Um, and, and I'm not sure. If, <laughs> I'm not sure this will qualify as female. But Yaddle, who is Yoda's species, is female, and she's on the Council in the Phantom Menace. Okay. Um, <laughs> again, I'm really not sure that counts. Yaddle doesn't even speak. We only know she's female because of the visual dictionary. Yeah, I don't think that counts. Yeah, no. Not for the purpose kind of, of this discussion anyway, because that's the thing, you don't come away with any sense of who they are or what they care about, right? So. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like window dressing when you just have women there in that capacity as background characters. Obviously, it's, it's cool to have women there as background characters because often you did not get that at all in the original trilogy because... You just had these entire worlds populated almost exclusively by men, it would seem. Um, and that the prequel trilogy is better for that. But at the same time, it's 
how much does it mean when none of these women have names and none of them talk to each other and none of them have anything like meaningful characters? If we're describing people to each other based on their species or, oh, she's wearing that headdress, like, you, you know, we're not given anything beyond that. Yeah, exactly. These characters aren't even named in the movies. Yeah. They're named purely through the ancillary material. Um, and of course, that's because they, they can't have like dozens and dozens of characters. But I'd say for like every nine male speaking parts in a Star Wars movie, you have, if you're lucky, you'll have one female speaking part. You know, like there's so many like men of all different types and qualities. Like, and like that's just completely accepted and part of the fabric of these worlds and these environments that the characters enter. But like a woman really stands out because a woman talking, a woman <laughs> named, what is this? Yeah. And as you say, and as you say, they explored more of the female characters in that time period in the Clone Wars. Um, so mm-hmm. There were some great female characters. I won't go into it too much because obviously we want to focus on the movies. Um, but there's Asajj Ventress and the rest of the Night Sisters from matriarchal society who who believed that they were superior to the men who occupi- occupied the same planet. So that was pretty awesome. Um, and they were multifaceted villains as well. You know, they they were they used the dark side, but they weren't Sith. They kind of did their own thing, which was very interesting and kind of broadened that sense of the Force. And yes. there were also um, great female Jedi as well. There was Ahsoka, obviously, um, and she had friendships with other Jedi Padawans like Varys Opie. Um, and there was Luminara Unduli as well, another great female character. So they were there, but, you know, I don't know how many people watch The Clone Wars or watch Rebels. I do, but they're not reaching the mass audience in the same way. Lucasfilm obviously know that. They must know that. No. That must be something that drives these kind of decisions, right? That you put more of the female characters in their stories in the media that less people are going to consume. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like the main problem with having these great female characters and these great stories about women and like gender conflicts and stuff in like things like the Clone Wars and Rebels. That's awesome, and I'm really, really happy that's happening. But like you say, it's just such a niche audience compared to the audience that the films reach. And obviously, there's this widespread perception just in popular culture that Star Wars is for boys. And obviously Ray has gone a long way towards helping that recently, but it's still very, very prevalent. If you go and look for Star Wars toys, they are going to be in the boys' section. They're not going to be anywhere near the girls' toys. And that's obviously as much about cynical marketing decisions and what retailers think will get the most toys sold as anything else. But it does also reflect that the films themselves are largely male-oriented. Yeah in terms of representing mainly male characters and focusing on male relationships and, yeah, all those kinds of facets. And a little boy is going to go and he's going to want a Stormtrooper doll, generally, rather than, like, a Barasofi doll. Like, I'm sure there are some boys who would love a Barasofi doll, but, like, often they won't even know that character exists because they haven't seen the Clone Wars, (laughs) for example. So, yeah, it... It's kind of like they need to break out of that niche. Like it needs to become more mainstream with these, with this whole idea of telling stories about women and female characters, and um, which I do think we're making baby steps towards now. But it's still not as great as it could be. Yeah, 
and I think it's really important to emphasize that what we're seeing, it is baby steps, because it's I don't consider it particularly progressive to have stories just about white women. Mm. That's the thing, right? Like, you get these YouTube troglodytes, oh, two Star Wars films in a row about women? It's this feminist conspiracy, but they're both white, brunette, conventionally attractive women. Slim, you know, like... Yeah desirable for the average male fan it's not like i don't know i feel like they could be going much further with it and should be hopefully they're moving in that direction as you say but it's just kind of depressing to even consider that progressive because i don't think it is yeah i think for me the the main thing that frustrates me is the absence of any meaningful relationships between women like even when you get meaningful and important female characters like padme and like leia and like Ray, it's a real, real challenge to think about any interactions they have with other women. I think really Padme is probably the best because you do get a sense of her having a kind of friendship with her handmaidens. Um, and you just don't get that with Leia or Ray, really. Um, I don't think Leia speaks to another woman throughout the whole original trilogy. If, if I'm wrong, I'd absolutely welcome to be corrected. Um, and I think Ray, the only female character she has an actual conversation with is Mars, who's not even human. Yeah. Um, obviously, she's still female, but she's not a human female. And that does matter. That does make a difference. Um, Leia talks to Ray at the very end of The Force Awakens, but Ray says nothing bad. There's no sense of a real relationship or a real reciprocal interaction there. It's purely just having like them both together for a tiny fleeting moment and like all of these women all of their key relationships are with men and i think that's disappointing because i've mentioned jupiter ascending to you before and i'm really sorry i'll keep it quite brief but that film is really really good for having loads and loads of female relationships so the main character in that film she's a young russian immigrant woman and she lives in a house that's mostly women and it's essentially dominated by the women for the most part. And her strongest relationships are with her mother and her aunt. And then when she goes off into this wild space adventure, she meets all of these crazy characters. And about half of them are women, easily. Um, so she meets this badass female space captain, like who's also a woman of colour. Um, she meets like the daughter of her former self who she's a reincarnation of it's very strange um and she meets like the personal assistant of another child of the woman she's a reincarnation of and yeah there's just all these like relationships and all these dynamics like where you see the heroine interact with all these different kinds of women and that's just so cool because it adds something because there is this real special quality i think to female relationships of all different kinds that is unique and is really worth exploring and looking at like in film and Star Wars flat out hasn't done it and it can be done and it's just frustrating to see it not even really attempted at least not in any real sincere way and i find that quite frustrating no i completely agree um if you're looking at how it seems like episode eight and Rogue One is shaping up as well. It sounds like more of the same in terms of women not necessarily exploring relationships with other women. Um, yes. You know, we hear a lot, we haven't heard an awful lot about spoilers for episode eight yet, but we're, it's shaping up the general impression 
is that Ray is going to be with Luke and Kylo Ren. Mm -hmm. And then Finn is going to have this arc that has Kelly Marie Tran as a key character in it. But is there another woman for her to interact with? Or is she just along for Finn's journey? Yeah, I I do think about that. And it kind of makes me a bit like, because there was also a thing a few months ago. At Celebration, where Ryan Johnson was talking about the movies he referred to as inspiration for episode eight. And it really struck me that vast majority of those movies, like, they really don't have prominent female roles in them at all. Many of them were war movies. So obviously they're traditionally very, like, male-oriented and they have largely male casts. Um, and yeah, I think the one film where there was what you could call a female protagonist was Less Never Sent, the Russian film which does have a female heroine in Tanya. But isn't she the only um, female character? Sorry? Isn't she the only female character, though? Yes, yeah, she is the only female character. But at the same time, it was at least a film where it had a woman who was a central focus of the plot, which I don't think any of the other films had. None of them. Which I kind of found a bit disappointing, because obviously, episode eight, Ray is the protagonist. Every Everyone has been very clear on that. No one is denying that, and that's a good thing. But it's kind of like, I really, really hope that you're looking beyond this as well. That there's things you can't talk about, other inspirations. Oh, I'm sure there. That. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Um, but I just really want to be reassured, almost, because based on the precedent for female representation in Star Wars, I almost don't trust them. You know. Yeah. Um. Well, so I kind of want to be reassured. I want to know that you've watched a movie where there's lots of interesting stuff going on in terms of the women in the film and how they're represented and maybe even like watching films with two women interacting and talking to each other to move on from that we've obviously spoken about the prequel trilogy then we went into some general observations about the treatment of female characters in star wars and how it often leaves something to be desired um and yeah so we can move on to the original trilogy a bit um and yeah i wrote a list of female characters who had actually let's just stick to the female characters who are named and have speaking parts um and i'm pretty sure there's only three across the whole original trilogy correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's leia one mothma and aunt brew i think that's the only three do you think that's right the humans yeah yeah i mean there's also ula <laughs> Yeah, who, who's silent, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's... I don't think she's ever named. Oh, is she not? Okay. I don't think so. Like, she's obviously named in, like, external material. Okay. Um, but I don't think anyone says, Hey, Ula, get over here. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Jabba doesn't say, come and dance for me. Oh, God. We have a whole conversation about, about the gold bikini as well. We could talk about that. Oh, God. Years, but... Yeah, that's almost just too grim to go into. It's like, oh, seriously, George, seriously. I do think that's very much a case of, okay, it's the early 80s. I'm just going to accept that that was okay then and move on because otherwise I'm going to tear my hair out. Um, Yeah, like, um, it's kind of a bit cringe looking back because, like, I have seen some people try to reclaim the gold bikini, which is really cool and good for them. Like saying, like about how, like Leia is the hut slayer, 
for example, and like using it as like a cosplay and really getting into it and really enjoying that. And I think that's awesome because plenty of girls look kick ass in it and they're clearly having loads of fun. But at the same time, that costume is purely about Leia being subjugated. Yeah. And Leia is forced into that costume against her web against her will. And yeah, it's just so cringe and it almost makes me uncomfortable to see like that being like cheered on and like celebrated as something like that's really sexy and cool because it's like no she's in sexual slavery basically it's not nice yeah it's the context of it for me if she had decided to wear it herself and wanted to look fab go ahead that's awesome but, <laughs> yeah java had forced her to wear it it was it's disgusting you know like it's just no yeah doesn't like Jabba um, like lick her face yes okay I live in America and right now there's all this Donald Trump stuff going on (laughs) at the forefront of our minds you know even more than usual being women um but I've seen all these memes going around comparing Jabba the Hutt to Donald Trump and I (laughs) it's on point so I will not I will not cheer Leia wearing that bikini it's yeah she looks amazing that's not the issue obviously she looks beautiful in it she's beautiful in any outfit but she did not choose to wear it, you know? It's it's symbolic of her agency being taken away from her. Yeah, no, exactly, which I think is kind of like an, a prevailing problem with Return of the Jedi, just in general. In terms of Leia, I love Return of the Jedi. It's like I said last episode, it was my gateway drug to Star Wars. It was the one I watched on repeat over and over again because I liked it so much. Um, but... Yeah, in terms of Leia, it was really bad. Like, she started off so well. Again, it's like Padme from the prequels. Like, she starts off in the first film. She's, like, really spunky. She's kick-ass. I wouldn't call Leia the protagonist of A New Hope, like, as you could argue for Padme being the protagonist of The Phantom Menace, because obviously Luke is the protagonist of A New Hope. There's just no question. Um, But, like, Leia is still a great character in that film, and you really get a sense of her principles and her goals and what she wants. And then by the time Return of the Jedi comes around, it's all about, oh yeah, I'm your sister. <laughs> yeah. In a way, um, it was like, um, he actually went above and beyond writing Leia at first because she's the goddess in Luke's hero journey, right? He goes to save her. So she's like an object. And he, yeah. Object of desire, almost. Cringe. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, so- she gets, he goes to save her. Like That's his goal at, at that moment. But yeah. she actually is this fleshed out principled awesome character who's not afraid of Darth Vader and Tarkin, which is brilliant to see. But as you mm. say, then that kind of gives way over time. Um, and I still love her in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. But yeah. it is almost like all these big dramatic moments, like I'm, I'm your brother, um, watching Alderaan explode. They, they're all about Luke. Like, you know, he sees Ben Kenobi die. And that's the emotional weight. It's not her watching her entire home planet destroyed along with her adoptive parents mm. and everyone she knows. That's not even lingered on for a second. Yeah, no, totally. You're right. It almost reminds me of what Lucas did with the prequel trilogy with like Padme becoming like the spur for Anakin's man pain. Because yeah. Leia's kind of like the spur for Luke's man pain as well. So if you think when Luke and Vader are dueling towards the end of Return of the Jedi, and what really makes Luke go berserk and absolutely start beating Vader with vengeance, 
is when Vader taunts him with the reference to your sister. Yeah. And like Luke goes absolutely mental. And again, that's nothing about Leia in herself. It's about Leia as like a propulsive force for another character. So she almost like goes from being like this heroine, this like hero of the Rebel Alliance, like in her own right, to becoming love interest of Han Solo and sister of Luke Skywalker. And that almost becomes the sum of her role in Return of the Jedi. And that's kind of sad. Yeah. And I, you know, even in the sequel trilogy, I feel like her defining thing is that she wants her son back. You know? Like, about her relationship with another male character now. Yeah, exactly. And, And even that kind of feels so lacking because in The Force Awakens, the main central relationship is... It's not between Leia and Ben. It's between Han and Ben. Like, it's all about Kylo's daddy issues. And you really get no proper concept of how he feels about his mother. And I think that's really sad. Like, because there's so much room in Star Wars to explore relationships between mothers and sons, for example. They keep going back again and again and again to this whole idea of relationships between fathers and sons. And I know that obviously they're trying to mirror things and that they're trying to pay homage to what has gone before. But at the same time, it's like there's so much potential here, especially because Han is the one who dies in The Force Awakens. So Leia is the one who's going to be going forward. If there's going to be any enduring relationship and any involvement, and crucially any evolving relationship, it is going to be between Leia and Ben. But like that is not alluded to even slightly in The Force Awakens. And it kind of frustrates me because they could have done it, but it's just a missed opportunity again. Yeah, I think one easy thing that could have um, gone that way that would have hinted more at Leia being a more pivotal part um, was have Snoke be a female character. Yeah, which is something they actually played with. Yeah, so for fairy tale dynamics like that, it would have played more into the you know the evil witch luring the son away from his mother, right? Yeah. Gender dynamics are really important in fairy tales, but because Snoke's he he appears to be a man, I, as far as I understand it, he's going to be a man for the <laughs> or not man but male humanoid. Yeah, um, that that kind of aligns him with Han as competing fathers as opposed to competing mothers. Yeah, no, exactly. They could have done like a really cool, like almost East of the Sun, West of the Moon thing. Yeah, because in East of the Sun, West of the Moon, the prince is. Like, he's basically forced to marry this horrible troll against his will. And, like, he's swept away from his bride, who he actually loves, um, when she does something wrong in betraying him by looking upon his face. Um, And then he has to go off to this castle, east of the sun, west of the moon, to marry the evil troll witch. And, in a way, like, by having Snoke as a woman, you'd have that kind of, like, sexual element as well as the, like, maternal element. And, yeah, like, there's all these fascinating dynamics they could have had there and they went no we're gonna have another creepy old alien man and he's just gonna be a surrogate dad lols <laughs> we're still trying to play into that element um you were talking earlier about that annual that you got and there's a bit mm-hmm. there that says that he's under snoke's spell right yes so it does play into that idea of manipulation and witchcraft and seduction yeah, no, definitely. Um, a female character, that seduction would have been a bit more explicit, and 
people probably would have been a bit more icked out by it. So. Yeah, no, exactly. I think there would have been like more overt sexuality to it, perhaps. Which, when you think about what Snoke looks like, is really, really creepy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but come on, if you saw Snoke, you would turn and run a mile. You would not be enticed by that. Um, but who knows, maybe if they were thinking about like female Snoke, because obviously it's cinema, so if it's a female villain, they'd probably make it her sexy in some capacity mm. probably wouldn't be quite so hideous um but yeah mr boat totally mr boat uh, um, and aside from leia i don't feel like there's too much else to discuss in the original trilogy like obviously you have mon mothma and luke's aunt but <laughs> what can you say about aunt no. brew she makes blue milk well <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they're not really characters they don't have like personal journeys or anything i mean they're plot devices too aren't they you know they get burned yeah. and then looks like oh well i guess i'll go because there's nothing left of me here yeah exactly baru is essentially a motivating like plot device like so she's just like another shove for luke along his journey whereas mon mothma is just an exposition machine ruthless and maybe a bit reductive but true so yeah, and I guess that brings us full circle through to sequel trilogy, which is pretty good. We're picking up the pace, which is important. <laughs> um, and yeah, obviously sequel trilogy, crucial, because first trilogy was a female lead, an indisputable female lead, um, after the whole discussion about Phantom Menace and Padme, um, because obviously we have Rey, who we both love and think is kick-ass. Yeah, she's fantastic. Like, I'm really excited to see what they do with her. Um, and how her journey is going to progress and you know the whole big mystery right now or what people perceive to be the mystery largely is her parentage but that's like the last thing that I find interesting about Ray, honestly yeah no that's actually what I find most frustrating about the Ray dialogue online it's like I, 90% of the conversation is about who her parents are not about Ray herself and I find that so so frustrating because I, like you, I find Ray really interesting, and I think there's so much to discuss about how, where she was in Force Awakens, and how did she survive, and what coping arrangements did she have, and how did she psychologically deal with her situation, and all of this trauma of being abandoned and having to fend for herself. How did she remain like so sunny and optimistic, like despite everything? And then, of course, there's all the questions about where she's going to go going forward. And I just don't see that many conversations about her. It's like, oh, who's the dad? Yeah, it's always the dad. dad. It's always the dad, not who's the mother. Yeah, no, it's awful. It's like, it's almost like medieval gender politics. (laughs) What's the last thing going to be? I need to know. (laughs) I need to know who sired her. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, Whose legacy is she going to continue? And if you look at existing female characters, it's just Leia, right? In terms of what she could mean, like how would she fit into the existing characters that we know? Because aside from that, it's just Padme, and obviously she's gone. Um, yeah. But even the stuff about people considering her to be a solo, it was still always in terms of, oh, she's Han's daughter. Mm. It wasn't like about her being Leia's daughter so much, like you say. And it's interesting in the discussions it's always like about qualities that align her with Han none that align her with Leia 
is always like, oh, she's good at fixing things. Oh, she has a blaster. Oh, Han likes her. It's all framed from that angle. It's not about the maternal relationship at all. And again, I think that's just symptomatic of how it's been in Star Wars. People are used to fathers being the thing. And Star Wars isn't helping itself by how it's framing these things. Because I really think everyone at Lucasfilm is obsessed with their dad. Everyone. <laughs> everyone has daddy issues. <laughs> yes. So many daddy issues. The thing in The Force Awakens that makes, well, that really cements this as a heroine's journey for me and like, you know, looking at where Rey could possibly go is actually her one and only conversation with a female character when she's talking to Maz. And that's, <laughs> Maz is talking about her belonging being ahead, not behind. So mm. while Rey at the beginning is fixated on finding her family, the whole journey seems to be that she's not going to find that belonging or the answers that she's really looking for with her family. But it's going to be something else, something bigger, that she has this grander destiny. So it's almost ironic that then the focus of a lot of fans has been her parentage because it was almost overt to me that the film was saying, this is something that Ray really cares about right now and it stopped her from moving on and living her life. Mm. So it should not be what we're focusing on. It's all about what she's going to do in the future. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it, really. And it also reminds me of um, a tweet from Pablo, where, like, basically a while ago, J.J. Abrams came out at an event and he basically said the words, Ray's parents are not in The Force Awakens. He kicked off an internet shitstorm because, obviously, that is the end of the world for some people. Like, the idea that Ray might not be the child of Luke or might not be the child of... Han and Leia um, and basically in response to this Pablo Hidalgo of the Lucasfilm story group he did a flurry of tweets and I think one of them like wrote to him and said something about like that quote you mentioned about like like her family being in the past and something else being in her future like that's where her destiny lies um, and I think Pablo replied some along the lines of oh yeah that's true if you use the movie as the basis of your speculation sure <laughs> Um, and like you say, I, I tend to find that that is the missing link for a lot of people. There's these really overt statements that are kind of trying to tell you that the family isn't as important as you think they are. And they're just kind of missed because it's so essential for some people that she's related that they can't almost even entertain the idea that she might not be. Yeah. I mean, I understand why people do that if they're looking at it just purely from a Star Wars context because it is very much family-focused. But if you understand yeah. The Force Awakens as the start of a heroine journey and think of it from a like a female-centered story perspective, a lot mm. of stories in the coming-of-age fairy tale genre for, for female protagonists are very much like, you know, 90% of them are orphans. They come from these tough, underprivileged backgrounds. And they triumph against the odds and eventually find where they belong. And it's not where they thought that they would belong. You know, mm. they didn't have this idea of of a fixed destiny themselves when they were starting out on the journey. But through trials and tribulations, they come to find where they belong. Like, that's the story. And you can find this over hundreds, if not thousands of years of female-centered stories. So it's interesting to me that that still seems so controversial because, yes, this is Star Wars and traditionally it's been about people being reunited with family and 
being connected to each to each other and everything and I know that the previous two protagonists have been related but that doesn't mean it has to be the case for this trilogy and if everyone's talking about The Force Awakens just being another version of A New Hope they're probably going to read into those parallels and assume that it will be the same but I'm hoping for something a bit different Yeah, no, I definitely feel the same about that I think it's really important that they like branch away from these old models of what Star Wars is because they really need to like move Star Wars beyond those old patterns because there's only so many times you can have these patterns repeat themselves like what are you going to do you're going to be like on Star Wars 22 and it's going to be the story of like and the protagonist is going to be Anakin's great 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 grandson or something like there has to be some kind of breaking it. I'm not saying the Skywalker line has to die off. I don't think that's going to be happening because that would be commercial suicide for Disney. But I do think they need to prove like just to audiences in general that it's possible to have the hero of a Star Wars trilogy be someone who is not of the Skywalker bloodline. Like just to prove to people that there's like dynamics left in this series that they can draw upon to make it fresh and to have fresh conflicts and like new ideas and new aspects to the storytelling because if you keep on recycling the same family cycle over and over and over again it is going to go stale there's going to be a shelf life so they really need to prove that they can extend beyond that yeah and if people are looking for skywalker man pain we have kylo ren right there <laughs> Like so much man, like your whiny, complaining, entitled Skywalker. There he is, and I love. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, it's not like we're short of that in the trilogy. It's just he's not the main character. Yeah, exactly. He's like he's secondary to Ray. Not, I wouldn't call him a secondary character. I think he's one of the main characters, but Ray is above him, and it's always going to be her story, not Kylo Ren's story, and. I think that's good and cool, and as it should be. Yeah, I think it's really interesting way to approach it to have a, someone who doesn't look like she's going to be a Skywalker. Like it's looking less and less likely that Rey is related. I never thought she was when I first saw the movie, but obviously it's been the prevailing opinion that she is. And mm. um, I think it's you know it's really intriguing to have a Skywalker saga told from the perspective of someone who isn't one. Yeah, no, definitely. I would agree with that. I think it's a really good way to get fresh eyes on it because that family is such a clusterfuck. I'm sorry. Um, but they're just a complete mess. And I think they're at the point where they need fresh eyes because the Skywalkers themselves just keep... The evidence we're getting is literally history repeating itself because Kylo Ren, he is Anakin in a fresh mould and... Someone needs to smack his head against the wall. Yeah. Well, you look at the- hopefully that'll be Ray. Yeah, exactly. With the Anakin parallels, you can almost look at Ray as them doing justice to what Padme's story could have been. Yeah. Like I would really like that because, like, I, I think even people who don't like the pre- prequels can see all the potential in them, and I do think there's a great deal of possibility and potential. And revisiting, like you say, this idea of like a young, strong woman, but then actually holding on to that idea and not letting that be corrupted or eroded throughout the subsequent movies. Um, and yeah, I think it would be really nice to see Padme done right, basically. And I think there's room for that to be done for Ray. Yeah, fingers crossed. 
So yeah. looking at the rest of the female characters in the sequel trilogy, aside from Leia, it's Maz and Captain Phasma, who... <laughs> oh, I love Gwendolyn Christie. Don't know if you watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, I do. I love Game of Thrones. But I just... I Why why is she Phasma? Like, what is what is that character really bringing to the story so far? Zero is the answer to that, in my opinion. Did I imagine this? Or was she cast as part, like, as a response to the backlash about the lack of secondary female characters? Or, um, or female villains, or something like that? Because it just seems um, like she's tacked on to the narrative. Um, I know for a fact that Lupita and Gwendolyn, their casting was announced like a month or maybe even two months after the main cast was announced. Right. Um, and obviously there was a big backlash after the first cast picture came out because obviously the only women in it were Daisy and Carrie. Um, and it's just not good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that might may well have been the reaction. Although I'm sure that Maz was always going to be female. So I don't think that was something tacked on. But I can definitely see Phasma being tacked on because my understanding is that Phasma, like she basically exists because they are producing endless costume designs for Kylo. And one of those costume designs was Phasma, basically. Um, and obviously it's completely wrong for Kylo. It's actually quite hilarious to think about him wearing Phasma's costume. I am so glad they did not choose that for him. It would have been so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, like knight in shining armor thing, like knights of Ren, whatever. But no, it's it's not. It just looks like another stormtrooper, right? Basically. Yeah. No, it would be hideous, especially because the whole point of Kylo is he's got this like superiority complex. He would not want to be emulating the appearance of a stormtrooper. Um. So yeah, it's just dumb. But yeah, the character conception for Phasma came from the fact it was this discarded costume design. And JJ loved it so much that it was like, make a character for it. Yay, Phasma. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much where Phasma came from. So I do expect she was quite like a late addition. And also, this is probably cynical of me, but when you watch Gwendolyn like talk about the role and stuff, she's always like bigging up, like as if Phasma is this amazing character, like this incredible journey, and that she's going to be the icon to all these girls watching. And I think Gwendolyn's a great, great spokesperson for Disney and the new saga. But I'm sorry, but it's all complete nonsense. Phasma's lame. Yeah. No little girl is going to watch Force Awakens to think, I want to be Phasma. The one it's good not thing, going to happen. One good thing is that they did not sexualise the armour. Yes. Like I, that's, that's so true. That would, can you imagine having big metal boots? Oh my god. Because they, so, they could have done that. Yeah, they could have. I'm actually quite proud of them for not doing that because easy trap to fall into. Oh, it'd been awful. <laughs> God. Like, imagining Kylo Ren in that costume. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> that'd be, wow. That'd be one for the ages. I want to see someone draw that. Yeah, we are seriously taking a long time with this. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, do you want to maybe say a few words about Rogue One and then move on so we can try and get through this and wrap this baby up? Yeah, sure. So Yeah, cool. So, you know, like we were talking about earlier with the trailer, like I am really excited to see Jin's journey. Mm. They they do seem to have made changes 
to her characterization. And like, we don't know how much of that was down to the reshoots or whether they've just kind of selected certain pieces for the trailer to show her in a different light. But then she'll actually yeah. come across as quite multifaceted in the movie itself. That's what I'm hoping for. Because, you know, women in real life are fully capable of being strong and fierce and independent, but also have a softer side. They can also be likable. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Um, I, I really want to see Jin as this proper, like, multifaceted character. Like, she she can absolutely be compassionate and warm and inspiring. And I, I want to see her be those things. But I, I, I do also want to see her have that, like, cynicism and that, like, wounded feeling to her that you kind of sense from the early trailers that's kind of been expunged. Um, like you say, it's very, very easily just a question of how they entered the trailer because they're obviously trying to mass market this thing. So they're trying to keep it as appealing and straightforward as possible, which makes perfect sense. But yeah, at the same time, you don't want them to compromise the character like by making that all that she is. Like you don't want her to be all sweetness and light and all appealing and all lovely. Um, and yeah, I, and I think another thing I think is important to say about Jin is how it's that old Smurfette syndrome, yeah. where she seems to be this very prominent woman, which again is awesome. I'm so happy that we're having another female protagonist so soon. Like, screw the internet whinges. I'm sorry, but I just don't care if you're complaining about two women heroines in a row after like so many movies with guy protagonists. Like, yeah, like so. I love that we have Jin. But I do kind of have reservations because her entire crew is male. Every single one. And it's kind of like, you could have made it one of them woman. Exactly. One of them female. Like, what would have not hard. Like, it wouldn't have drastically altered the movie if a secondary character was a woman instead of a guy. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what is intrinsically male about Bodhi Rook, for example? Why did Brody Rook have to be a guy? Yeah. Um, I love Ahmed, so I'm excited to see his character. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I love Riz Ahmed, too. Totally awesome. I love Riz Ahmed. And, and I think it's great how overall diverse the group of rebels is. Like, you know, because we're not just talking about gender in terms of representation. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Obviously, I was focusing on that because the discussion yeah, is one but, but I agree with you. I um, really wouldn't have taken them that much just to make one or even two of those rebels women. And it could have still been clear that Jin was the main character. It's not like, oh, well, if you have two female characters interacting, is it going to be confusing which one's more important? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's so sad that we both know that that is probably legitimate like, issue that it's was raised. Like, it's like the men are the default. So it's like, yeah, you can have a group of men and that's fine. But if you have more than one woman, it's like, oh, well, are they going to have some kind of catty rivalry? Like, what's the story there? Oh, because they can't just be there to get the job done. Yeah. It can't be like, um, oh my god, two women, we've gone too far. Yeah. Oh, quick, let's have an artificially forced in love triangle or something. It's like, well, how else would we have women interact with each other? They couldn't just be friends or co-workers. Mm. Yeah, no, and that's so frustrating because, like you say, there's so much potential out there for all these different kinds of human relationships. And it's just not exploited, in, in my opinion. Um, and as like uh, another issue is obviously that again, Jin seems to continue the long tradition of daddy issues. Yeah. Because her central relationship, as very much pushed in this latest trailer, is clearly with her father. There's no reference to her mother. And um, didn't you find an article that 
didn't look good on the mother front, Kirsty. Yeah, um, Mads Mikkelsen was talking to GQ about the various ages of the the child actresses for Jin. Mm-hmm. It seemed it was it was from making Star Wars. He was reporting on it, Jason Ward, and mm-hmm. he inferred from it that it meant that Valine Kane, who plays Jin's mum, is going to be in flashbacks. So it's it's going to be heavily. You know, we can assume that that means that her her mum died in the past. Mm. Yeah, no, so I think I um, read the same article and I think it said that there's a child who plays Jin at four when he plays her at eight and then obviously there's um, Felicity who plays her as an adult um, and I think Jason was implying that Valine Kane, who plays Lyra Urso, the mother, um, she's only going to be in the scenes set when Jin is four and presumably the mother is out of the picture four years later, um, which is the time period we see in the trailer. Um, and yeah, that, that's really bleak. It's just, again, it's Phrygian mothers. I mean, I did, is I did. like killing her off to give the others pain that will drive their stories. And I am at least glad that it's driving a woman's story rather than a man's story, has, as has historically been the case. But wouldn't it have been cool for Lyra or so to be the architect behind the Death Star? Well, exactly. Why couldn't she have been the scientist? Like, you know. I, I kind of, I thought that it was going this way, partly because of, you know, historical precedent, but also because Valine Kane is three years younger than Felicity Jones. So she <laughs> yeah. couldn't have played her mother as a grown-up. That'd be Hollywood sexism at its absolute worst. <laughs> really? I mean, maybe they would have just put her in bad makeup or something like that, but why would you cast someone for that, obviously? Um, but, you know, Mads Mikkelsen is going to play the same character throughout all of those flashbacks, presumably. Mm. So, what, just, he just doesn't age? I don't know. Uh, no, that's actually true. Mads Mikkelsen, he's um, an immortal vampire who is ageless in all ways. <laughs> um, and they're just exploiting that natural affinity for the character, um, which I think is really cool. Um, no, no, he's not. Um, but you're right. Again, like, so, that, like, if Jin starts off at four, he's a tiny little kid, and then by the time Felicity's playing her, Felicity's around 30, I think. Um, so then, like, 26 years have passed. Mads Mikkelsen is still Mads Mikkelsen at the same age. Like, presumably with some kind of makeup towards the end. Um, but, yeah, it's like, seriously? Like, 26 years, same actor. That's pretty impressive. I hope the makeup's good. Yeah, but like you say, it's it's this... And I know it's again, it's that trope of the 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 girl who grows up without a mother. You know, we've seen um, that in endless fairy tales, so it makes sense. But I don't know. It's it's just like, would it be that difficult just to break away from that a little bit? It wouldn't. And um, the one last thing I'd like to say before we move on is there was recently a really really cool trailer for Knights of the Old Republic. Like I think one of the expansions did. Did you watch it? I haven't had time to yet, but I've heard lots of good things. Yeah, no, and basically it's really cool. I, I know zero about Knights of the Old Republic. I haven't played any Star Wars video games, and that's mainly just because I don't play many video games full stop. I just don't have much time. But I approach this as a pure outsider, as a story, and I really, really liked it. And I really liked it. It's all about the relationship between the little girl and her mother. And that was the central focus about this whole like short film, which is what it essentially was. And yeah, and it's about this little girl demonstrating these scary and dangerous powers. 
and then she's kind of taken from her mother and like brainwashed by this evil cult and then her mother goes to try and rescue her only to find that the daughter turns on her and there's just so much like drama and like emotion in this scenario and it's just so well done and it just made me think this is what you can get out of having stories about mothers and daughters and this is what we're missing like in all the other media for Star Wars and it's so frustrating to see them do it so well in a promo for a video game and not even attempt it in any of the films because it clearly can be done well and there's so much untapped potential there that's just not being exploited. Right, that's kind of what we were saying earlier, right? It's it's fantastic when you get these stories that are female-centric and mother and daughter focused. But mm. there's it, it's also like this weird backhanded thing where it's like, oh yeah, we'll tell your stories, but in the, the less... I don't know. They're not in the movies. They're in the books and... Kind of like, you know, I, I love Bloodline because it fleshed out Leia more for me and showed, you know, how she'd progressed since Return of the Jedi and how she was still dealing with not knowing Anakin and Padme. Um, mm. But it also made me realise, oh, this is in this book because it's not going to be explored in the films. So this is like throwing <clears throat> us a bone. And only a few thousand fans are going to read this. The mass audiences are not. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, and I really like Bloodline as well. It's actually the first novel from the new canon I've read. And I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was a great story and it really fleshed out Leia. But like you say, you're right. Like, it's awesome that the story is being told, but it can't help but be secondary because it's being told in that particular medium, the written format, which is only ever going to reach a really, really small niche in terms of the bigger picture. And... I just want to see them be brave, I think. I want to see them acknowledge that these stories can be so interesting and have so much potential and really add something fresh and original that Stars hasn't seen before. And I want to see them take that for and go, right, we're going to make a movie and it is going to be more about women and women interacting and mothers and daughters and those kinds of relationships that we haven't explored before. Um, so I think there's just so much like narrative possibility there and I think they're kind of doing themselves a disservice by not taking advantage of that especially because the story group's now majority female so you'd think that as women they would appreciate how much potential there is in telling stories about women like having relationships with other women because that's what's lacking I think we've had loads of really cool female characters in Star Wars it's like they just struggle to put them together and tell stories about that and that's what gets me and yeah it just comes back to them having so much potential and like you know i'm looking forward to the new han solo film i think they could do it really well it just in the back of my mind i'm like but what about a Leia film you know like what? i'd almost want to see a, more see a movie about Leia because like young rebel princess like going out on these daring missions and like getting in these all dangerous situations and like is she rebellious is she going against her father's wishes and all that kind of thing it's really cool and you might also get to see like leia's relationship with her adoptive mother yeah which is something that is not at all touched upon really anywhere as far as i'm aware at least not in the new canon no in um, bloodline it's about her father leaving her the message and everything yeah, exactly. So, like, what was going on between Leia and Rhea Organa? 
like did Brea maybe even come to resent her a bit because like obviously she wasn't her natural child like and thus Leia became more the daddy's girl because it's not that female relationships have to be like universally positive and great and awesome like you can also have like tense and antagonistic female relationships and that can be really interesting and fun to explore and again it's just it hasn't been happening and i'd like to see it happen yeah with the leia thing it almost seems like there's more ground for a story there because when you meet her in a new hope it's almost like she's fully realized as an adult character who knows what she's standing for where Um, whereas so so the journey could be like how does she get to that point because she's so young and has mm. these really strong values and you could see you know you could have that story of how she gets to that point whereas with Han as we talked about last week um there and um, you know we don't have any details on it but I'm just wondering how they would have an arc for him that wouldn't then reduce what happens to him throughout the original trilogy like you know going from selfish to selfless his anti-hero arc um it just seems like there would be more potential for a story for Leia yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Um, and you're right. So I think when we meet Leia, she is so assured and so like certain of what she is and what she needs to do that she's like fully formed in a way that Han isn't when we meet him. And so, like you say, then there's the question mark of how did she become fully formed? Why is this teenager like so mature? Like what got her to that stage? And yeah, so there's all this potential for stories, and I really hope they exploit that. Um, and yeah, I thought that was a great discussion. So thank you very much, Kirsty. I really enjoyed that. I'm sure we could go on for hours. We could. Um, this is easily going to be our longest so far. Um, but I think it's a justifiable topic, because as we found, there's so much to say. It's crazy. Um, right, I might actually skip straight to questions this time if that's all right with you yeah just because obviously we're seriously running over um and we're probably trying to blast through these as quickly as we can um right so we have our first question and this is how do you think what do you think about the recent disney merchandise and promotions i think they've become more and more Raylo featured at least as two opposite symbols of light and dark even if not going so far as to imply a potential romantic relationship is this intentional and implying something? So what do we think? Um, I think it's, and I'm assuming this person's referring to more of like the merchandising of Ray and Kylo, like dolls together in the same set, that sort of thing. Yeah, which we took I think that's time. what they're going for. Um, at the very least, it cements um, Ray and Kylo as the core relationship of heroine and villain, which the marketing before The Force Awakens didn't do. Um, it seemed like they were intentionally clouding that um, for a bit of a reveal in the story. So I think it makes it clear, and it's like, you know, packaging Luke and Vader together almost. Like, that's the central conflict. Yeah, no, 100%. I would agree with that assessment. Um, I, I I wouldn't say it's an indication of a romantic relationship as such. It's not like we're getting mugs showing them in, like, a romantic, passionate embrace or anything, but it's like Kirsty says, it's very much about cementing this relationship as central and these characters as being vital to each other's stories. And obviously the fact that they embody light and dark, that's kind of implicit through everything we know about them and even how they're presented visually. 
Like it's obviously Kylo's all in black. Ray's wears very light clothes, so they immediately form a contrast in that respect. Um, and yeah, I think that now Force Awakens is out, where I just see in promotional materials that actually reflect the hero-villain relationship as it's presented in The Force Awakens in all its glorious ambiguity. Yeah. It's very exciting. In the trailers, it was um, Finn and Kylo's duel, right? That was... Mm. So it, it almost led you to believe that the, the primary conflict was going to be between those two characters. And I think yeah. Finn and Kylo are foils to each other in The Force Awakens, but it's not the same as Rey's relationship to Kylo. And you really see that by the end of the film, that, you know, with the interrogation starts with her abduction and then the interrogation and then the fight all of their scenes are alone like there's no one else around it's really about those two together yeah no it's very much about that intimate one-to-one relationship between them and how they relate to each other and how they perceive each other um which is obviously what's so fascinating about it um and i think that obviously very little was said about what ray and kylo what their scenes were in The Force Awakens because that essentially constitutes some of the biggest spoilers in the film because Rey and Kylo interacting that's essentially where we become aware of Rey as a Force sensitive for example and that was perhaps the biggest secret that they wanted to hide by putting all the stress on Finn as the Jedi Um, so they couldn't explore the Rey and Kylo dynamic because that in itself is so important that it's a spoiler um and yeah, that's changing now. Like, I think one of the most exciting moments of my early fandom experience was when the Force Awakens storybook came out. And there's this amazing, beautiful cover cover illustration of Rey and Kylo locked in combat. And there's just this beautiful colours and the intensity of the expressions. And it's amazing. And obviously we've got nothing like that before the Force Awakens. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Though. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favourites. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for the question. And we will move on to question number two. Right, and this is, what are your thoughts on the fact that not only Kylo has lost his mask on Starkiller Base, but that coupled with the knowledge that Ray actually destroyed his lightsaber, I, I think this person's referring to the annual um, when I posted that bit of information. Um, if the saber reflects his personality, unstable and wild, and with Snoke completing his training, do you think he could come back with a more steady, stable one? Or perhaps it would be even more unpredictable if he wavers even more between light and dark, despite his training under Snoke. So I think the question here is, do we think the lightsaber is still going to reflect where Kylo is in Episode Eight? I'm not I think that's the crux of it. Because it seems like from the making Star Wars spoilers that he's going to have the saber and the mask still. Hmm. So I do think that they reflect his personality or the mask is him trying to hide who he is and the saber is, you know, unpredictable and volatile. Um, mm. But I don't know if it's going to change because just from a cynical, like, m- marketing merchandising perspective, they're going to want him to keep those defining paraphernalia so that they can sell more of them, right? Um, yeah, no, sure. Um, that's definitely true. Um, I I don't think they're going to ditch Kylo's look completely. It's so iconic, but I could see them like rep- ha- have him replace his lightsaber, but basically have it be virtually the same, except that it's more smooth and more concentrated. Um, because I could see part of his training under Snoke being to rebuild his lightsaber, for example. 
Um, I don't think they'd have him rebuild a completely different one. It's not like he's going to um, build like a purple mace window <laughs> lightsaber. Um, because, yeah, marketing reasons. First and foremost. We could do that because obviously it, all of our spoilers so far have been based on people just noticing things on set, but they're playing around mm-hmm. with the toy sabers while they're filming. So all of that stuff is done after the fact anyway. So you, if it was supposed to be a more put-together, predictable, reliable saber, just the same version, then we wouldn't be able to know at this point, right? Yeah, no, that's very much the case, um, because obviously they do have prop lightsabers that they use when they're filming, but they wouldn't reflect the final appearance of the lightsaber as it would seem in the film, where obviously it would be much more... Um, like, it would have all the visual effects, um, because obviously in real life the lightsaber isn't all fuzzy and sparking at the edges like the like it is in the film. Um, so if it were to be more stable and, like, not going berserk whenever Kylo throws a fit, um, then we wouldn't know that pretty much until the film came out, or at least not unless um, someone got hold of, like, some post-production shots and sent them to Jason Ward, yeah. um, which is possible. Um, but yeah, that would remain a mystery for a long time, I think. Yeah, I think they're going to have to change something visually to illustrate at the beginning of the film that, yes, he was defeated, but now he's back with a vengeance and he's bigger and badder than ever, you know? So they, whether they show snippets of him training and Snoke kind of punishing him and berating him, or mm-hmm. like you say, with a visual aid, like a, a saber that's more put together, and, and it just like to show that you need to take him a bit more seriously. Like, yes, he lost, but he's still the antagonist. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I can see them, like, starting, like, maybe Kylo could be introduced with, like, a montage of him building the new lightsaber, for example. Something like that would be a really good metaphor for him. Like, he's putting himself back together. Like, and then he's putting the lightsaber together. That symbolises that. And then if the lightsaber is different from before, aka more stable then that would indicate that he's like more focused and he's less chaotic than he was before. I, I would expect that focus to become completely lost over the course of the film, but I could see them beginning Kylo on that note, because like you say, they need to build him back up as a threat after his defeat at the end of Force Awakens. Yeah, and I think he is going to be singularly focused on finding Rey and having his revenge. Um, it's going to be... They're going to kind of start off with that Empire Strikes Back, you know, Vader's obsessed with finding Luke, right? It's going to mm-hmm. kind of trick the audience into thinking, oh, it's the same thing that's happening. But, yeah, like you say, over time, he'll probably lose that focus and become very confused and, what the hell have I done with my life? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, another great question. So thank you for that. Um, and then our third and final question is actually the first question we've got through YouTube. And it's from Midnight's Heaven. And it's a really good one. Um, and it goes, My question is, do you foresee Finn having a tutor in the form of Maz, with Phasma being a former one? When I say tutor, I mean tutor in the sense of a moral standpoint in helping Finn find his way in life, not being a Jedi, with Maz being the good one and Phasma being the bad one. Since they are both women, it would juxtapose Ray's teachers being men, Han, Luke and possibly Kylo, respectively. Or will Kelly Marie Tran fill this role completely, aside from being his possible possible love interest? Or will Poe be a quick teacher and Kelly the love interest? So it's quite a involved question. Yeah. Um, I really but like what do the we idea think? Of 
Maz and Phasma kind of having a face-off vicariously through Finn. <laughs> yes, like a battle of the mothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Also, you know, they, those were two female characters that were underutilised, I thought, in The Force Awakens. So this would be a kind of easy way to get around that issue if they wanted to. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I think there's lots of potential for both characters. We know they're both coming back. Miles is coming back as well. And one thing I was actually wondering is about the spoiler of Finn coming back like better and stronger. Like in the art book, I believe it's implied that Mars has something to do with like that revival of Finn, like that transformation of him into a hero and warrior. So I do wonder if maybe that would be Mars's function in episode eight to kind of like help guide Finn and like help set him on this path, which would be what Midnight's Heaven is suggesting. Like, by having Mars be kind of like his mental figure. I don't think she'd be, like, as central as, say, like Yoda was to Luke in Empire Strikes Back. But I could definitely see her, like, being some kind of spiritual guide to him. And I think that'd be really cool to have this young man having this older woman, like, be the one who, like, advises him and helps to shape his path. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I think that makes sense because I don't see how else they would neatly slot Mars into either of the sides of the story. Like she's not going to just turn up on up to presumably. That <laughs> <laughs> was so so random. Um, that actually reminds me of um, we're not having it came from Reddit this week, um, but there's a hilarious gift someone posted and it was some um, how Mars found um, Luke's lightsaber, and basically it's a gift of the scene from Empire Strikes Back where Luke gets his hand cut off, but in the gift someone's added Mars. <laughs> And she like jumps up when the hand is cut off, and the and the hand like pops into her box that she's holding. Oh my god, it's so good! I'll send you a link later. Um, it's just hilarious. Um, yeah, um, and it's really funny. Um, but you're right. Like, I don't see where else it would be natural for Mars to be. Um, we know in the earlier iterations of the Force Awakens, Mars was meant to be on the Resistance base at the end of the Force Awakens. Um, but they kind of cut her out, presumably just to keep the story streamlined. But there's no reason to believe that she isn't there. So I wouldn't be surprised if at the start of episode eight, we find that Mars is at the Resistance base and that she is like mentoring Finn in that way. Yeah, I mean, her castle's been destroyed, right? So it's almost like she might feel like she doesn't have anywhere else to go or her and Leia have a long-standing relationship that we don't know about yet and she kind of gets folded into more of the resistance activities as a result. Yeah, no, um, she's kind of homeless, I think, at this point. So I'm going to guess that she um, has the resistance as kind of like her base of operations, at least at the start of the movie. I doubt she's going to be prominent. Like I, I very much doubt she's in it as much as she was in The Force Awakens. But yeah, it would be very cool to have her and Finn like have that kind of relationship because they did actually have a kind of interesting dynamic in Force Awakens. It's very briefly touched upon, but she's like the one who, like, who tells Finn, you have a weapon, use it, go on. Like, so she's already done that kind of guiding role for him. Yeah. As um, Poe and, and Kelly Marie Tran, I'm not sure mm-hmm. how much interaction is going to be between Poe and Finn in, the, in episode eight. Because isn't Oscar Isaac, he's going to have scenes presumably with Laura Dern mm. and, and Leia. That, that's going to be, because 
the spoilers have kind of indicated. Sorry, we're talking about spoilers freely again. Um, <laughs> We've been doing that for the whole podcast. Don't worry. I really forgot to put a warning at the beginning again. Um, I'll add though, don't worry. So that's going to be his storyline that he's kind of taking over from Leia because she's in coma, mm-hmm. if that's true. And there's going to be conflict with Laura Dern's character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how much screen time they're going to get together. Sorry, Storm Pilot fans. Yeah, I um, I predicted that Finn and Poe would have like this great like adventure together in episode eight because that's basically what everyone thought because obviously the characters have great chemistry in Force Awakens. But the spoilers we've been hearing, you're right, they kind of indicate that they're just doing separate things. With Poe's story being more about like the overarching struggles with the resistance. Like, so he's involved a lot with Leia and Laura Dan. Um, whereas Finn is going off on these missions with Kelly Marie Tran. So I do kind of think they're going to be on separate paths. So I don't see... Like, I'm sure they're going to have screen time together. I'm pretty sure that um, Oscar Isaac has confirmed it as much, that he's been filming lots of great scenes with Finn, which is awesome. Um, but I don't see him taking on, like, a mentor role. And, and I almost don't want that. I want to see them be more equals. Yeah. Because Poe in Force Awakens, he was very much like in a like a position almost like he he named Finn. So in a way, he's almost responsible for like molding him in that film. I can help him to kickstart him along his journey. But I don't want to see Finn beholden to Poe going forward. No, if that makes sense, I want to see Finn break away from that. And I think that's going to be what the whole point of his journey is. It's not going to be Finn as the guy who's named by another guy that he just met and he just kind of goes along with everything and he's happy-go-lucky and like he's just directed by others I think he's going to be directed by his own goals and his own preoccupations and that has to happen I think. No I think that makes complete sense and I can't remember his exact words but Oscar Isaac said in an interview a few months ago that all of the heroes and the characters were, were going to be tested in episode 8 so they can't really be tested if they're still with people they know and trust and who can help them out. You know what I mean? Like, for, for each character to develop, they're going to kind of have to be like, oh, God, what am I going to do? I'm in this place, and I, you know, I don't have anyone around who I can just rely on. I'm going to have to make my own decisions there. I'm going to have to be resourceful, and that's how they'll grow. Yeah, no, that, you're right. That's definitely going to be very important, I think, because we're getting a sense of all the characters being separated from the characters who are central to their stories in The Force Awakens. And like you say, that's going to be essential to their, like the dramatic potential of their arcs and their development as characters. Because if they're with people they're comfortable with and they love and they're close to for all of Episode Eight, then they are going to be kind of constrained because there's limits to what you can do with them within that framework. There has to be things to mix it up. And that seems to be what they're doing by radically altering the character pairings and who is going to be with which characters. And that's what makes the prospect of episode eight so exciting because obviously it is playing around with that and there's so many different combinations that are going to be fresh and quite exciting. Yeah, totally. Good question. Yeah, a really, really great question. I'm really thrilled with the quality of the ones we're getting. They're great for provoking these discussions so thank you very much um and on that note it's been exceptionally long so if you're still here 
thank you very much. Um, but I know it's past my bedtime. And I think it's time that we need to wrap up. So thank you so much, Kirsty. It's been really wonderful to talk. And yeah, I think we've had some pretty cool discussions. So I'm pleased with how it went. Yeah, lots of interesting ideas. Yeah, no, definitely. There's been lots of things to get through. Um, and I think we warrant the runtime. Um, as always, if you have any questions, please contact us on Tumblr. I'm Star Wars Nonsense at Tumblr.com. And Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay at Tumblr. And if you have any feedback, any questions whatsoever, we'd love to hear from you. So please get in touch on Tumblr or equally in the YouTube comments. Um, we will always do our best to get back to you and we'll get through as many questions as we can on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, I think that's good night for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>